You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining this special edition of the American Revolution. I spoke with William Clark of the Gray History Podcast. His podcast is doing a deep dive into the French Revolution. We discuss the relationship between France and America during the two revolutions and how that relationship developed over time. I recorded this podcast several months ago, and I've been neglectful about releasing it, so my apologies to Mr. Clark about that. However, we did have a good discussion, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this special joint episode between the American Revolution podcast and Grey History, the French Revolution. My name is Will Clark, and I'm the host of Grey History, the French Revolution, and joining me today is Mike Troy of the American Revolution podcast. Mike, great to have you here. How are you going? Hi, Will. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. It's something that we've been discussing for a while now, and obviously the French Revolution and the American Revolution happening relatively closely together. They're two periods of time, two you know, tectonic events in, in history and you inevitably get questions when you're talking about the French Revolution, about the American Revolution, and and vice versa. So it's great to to dive into some of those. And I know that both our listeners have sent in some questions today. I guess we'll get started with why did France get involved in the revolution in the first place? Well, that's the million-dollar question. And I know that historians have debated this question for quite some time. I suppose from my perspective, if you want to understand why the French were eager to, to get involved in the American Revolutionary War. Uh, firstly, through kind of covert and secret means by sending you know, goods and supplies and money and then a formal declaration of alliance later on, you need to look at the foreign minister of France at the time, a guy named Vergennes. Vergennes is quite an interesting character. He's kind of a combination of cautious and ambitious. When you look at his writings in 1776 and 1777, the thing that comes across to you in his justifications for France starting to become somewhat involved in the conflict through supplying goods secretly to the revolutionaries is a quite defensive stance. He's talking to his cabinet colleagues about the dangers of a short war, of a quick war, where either Britain wins or it loses, but then uses some of its military assets in the region to attack French colonial interests in the Caribbean. So at this point in time, Haiti and the like are French colonial possessions. You could kind of joke that after the Seven Years' War, these colonial possessions in the Caribbean are a combination of the jewel in the crown of the French colonial empire, as well as the only jewels left in the crown. At this point in time, Louisiana, Canada, parts of Africa, and its outposts in India have all been taken away from France. And so when you look at Vergennes' writings, he's essentially worried about the British using their resources that are already in the region to fight the revolutionaries to either capitalize on the armed forces they've already assembled or alternatively to kind of make up for losses if the American revolutionaries are successful. 
And so from his point of view, he wants to kind of prolong the war and help the American revolutionaries. But what's fascinating about Vergen's stance is that if you actually kind of dig into the detail a little bit, it actually looks like a very convenient truth that he's spinning. And actually, he might have quite different motivations for getting involved because if it was really just about protecting French interests, well, then a, a declaration of neutrality might have helped that. If you actually start looking at Vergen's personality and his perspective of the world, it becomes quite clear that he's one of these French diplomats that absolutely loathes England. He writes about it being a tyrannical empire, an empire ruled by pride and injustice. He actually says quite clearly that it's his duty to find a way to try to reduce the standing of the English. And here I think you start to find some more motivations. From Vergen's point of view, America is the backbone of British colonial and then by association, military and diplomatic power. It's the colonies that supply copious amounts of cheap raw material. They purchase manufactured goods from England. This commercial power then translates into military power, and the two of those things translate into diplomatic power. And so if he could dislodge the colonies, if he could help to dislodge the colonies from England, it would be a devastating blow to the English. It would rob them all at once of their commercial power and by association, their military power and their diplomatic power. And so when we're talking about French motivations for being involved in the conflict, there are many to discuss. But from the perspective of the Foreign Office, this is a man who saw an opportunity to deal a devastating strike against his opponents. I think that's true, although I'm not sure he knew where all this was going to go from the beginning, but he thought it'll probably help France and hurt Britain. I I think you're right. Britain and France by this time were were longtime historical enemies for a lot of reasons. I think both had claims on the other's countries. The kings claimed each other's countries. There was the whole Catholic-Protestant split. And of course, as you said, they're fighting over colonies all over the place. I went back and looked, and I counted about 40 years out of the previous 100 years before the war started that the two countries were at war. So they were at war almost half the time with each other. So these were two countries that were constantly butting heads. France is a larger country, has a larger population, has a larger army. Britain has a larger navy, which is giving its advantages overseas. But France, you're right, saw this, especially after losing North America in the Seven Years' War, as an opportunity to hit Britain, not necessarily to win anything, but to force Britain to spend a lot of money and resources that it didn't have on a rebellion in North America. My view has always kind of been that France did not really have a lot of respect for the colonies at the time. They really never thought they could win, but what they thought they could do is prolong this war for a really long time and just bleed Britain of resources so that Britain was generally weaker overall and, right, couldn't use the the benefits of the colonies for a very long time while they were fighting and had to devote army and navy to North America, which meant that other colonies would be more vulnerable and that Britain certainly couldn't go on the offensive in other parts of its empire. Yeah, it's fascinating the kind of geopolitical calculations that are happening. I suppose it's worth pointing out that from France's interests, the colonies and the continent are two very different things. And part of what France wants to do here in restoring its own diplomatic prestige is be able to assert influence over colonial Europe in a way that it wasn't able to do really after the disastrous Seven Years' War that had occurred in the couple of decades before. 
you mentioned that England and France were at war for extensive periods of time. This is actually a period of time that historians refer to as the Second Hundred Years' War, if you think about where we're heading. After the American Revolutionary War, well, then it's the French Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic Wars. And so these are two countries that are you know, really uh, locked um, in a, in a never-ending duel about which one will be the colonial masters of the world, really. These are the kind of conflicts that determine that, as well as which one will come out on top in America specifically. And you're right that Vigène and the French cabinet were making up policy as they went along for a period of time. And everyone here is human. They were making miscalculations and they were trying to do with the best that they had. You know, Vigène, at one point in time, when he's trying to convince the Spanish to come off the sidelines, essentially says that the colonies are so different in their geography and their temperaments that there's no way that any United States would be able to assert itself as a global power for several centuries. Now, obviously, he gets that wildly wrong. So we're not dealing with someone who is a genius by any means. He's just playing the cards that are dealt to him in, in a way that he sees best. But I suppose from my perspective, you know, we only really touched on the American Revolution briefly when we were discussing it in, in the French Revolution podcast. One of the things that we didn't get into, which I think a lot of people would be quite interested in, would be what this French assistance actually looked like. When we talk about French intervention, what did that actually mean on the ground? And you do see some historians claim that without French help, the American cause for independence at that point in time would have been doomed. Do you give that any credit? And what are your thoughts on that? I do think that's true, that the Americans would have, without French assistance, would have been in almost impossible situation. Even with the assistance, they were in an almost impossible situation at the beginning. The American Revolution began outbreak of hostilities in 1775 with the battles of Lexington and Concord. Almost immediately, the colonies sent diplomats over to France to see if they could get some assistance or even an alliance, although that was kind of a dream at the, at the beginning. France, as I said, had already expressed an interest in seeing what was going on with the colonies. The source of fighting between the colonies and Britain actually began in the mid-1760s uh, with the passage of the Stamp Act in 1765. France actually sent an agent to the colonies in 1768 to kind of get a feel for how much this protest and division, the strength of feeling among the colonists and whether this could be pushed into a bigger division between Britain and her colonies. They sent a man named Baron de Kalb, who many of American Revolution people will recognize as somebody who became a general in the Continental Army years later. But he actually went as a French agent to America, posing as a Prussian general, because obviously French officers were not very welcome in the colonies at the time, and inspecting military defenses and getting the feel of, of the colonists for how much they really oppose things. Uh, now, that's a uh, a long introduction to actually getting to answering your question, which was more about what did the Americans uh, want to do to get French aid? At the first, they just sent one person over to France, Silas Dean, uh, to act as an agent. And he was largely, at least publicly, ignored by the French court because what France really did not want to happen in 1775 was start another war with Britain. Uh, they were still rebuilding their navy from the Seven Years' War. They were still trying to restore their treasury uh, from the Seven Years' War, and they really did not want an all-out war with Britain at this time. But they were, as you say, interested in 
sowing division between Britain and her colonies. And so they began giving covert aid to the Americans through Silestine. Officially, as I said, Virgin would not meet with Silestine, but he did say, you may want to go speak to a guy named Beaumarchais, who was, for all intents and purposes, a private citizen. Some people know Beaumarchais because he wrote uh, several famous plays, including The Barber of Seville. He was also, in his younger years, a very close friend, and some historians have credibly argued a homosexual lover with a very important arms dealer in France. So he knew a lot about international arms trades. Silestine went and spoke with Beaumarchais and found Beaumarchais very interested in providing some support. Now, one problem the Americans had was they had no money. And when you go to buy arms on the international market, sellers usually like to have some money. Beaumarchais said, no problem. We'll give you a line of credit. You can buy a lot of stuff and you know we'll deal with the costs later. Now, Beaumarchais was not a nice guy. I mean, maybe he was, but he was not doing this because he was a nice guy. He was doing it because Vergen had given Beaumarchais a million livres to use as covert aid to allow the Americans to buy arms on the European continent. Vergen also went to the King of Spain and got them to pony up another million livres. So the huge line of credit that the Americans had came from the French and Spanish governments from the beginning, although they would not admit this publicly because doing so would have led them into a war with Britain, something they were trying to avoid. Obviously, over time, the British caught on to the fact that what the French are doing in terms of helping to supply considerable amounts of gunpowder, of arms, of money, etc., to the revolutionary cause. And you have a scenario, one incident where uh, Lord Stormont, who's the English ambassador, confronts Virgin, and essentially he gives him, he's outraged, and he says, you know, in the history of the world, there's no greater example of where, you know, the rebels of a country have been um, aided by another nation that professes to be friendly, i.e. he's having to go at France for, for smiling and, you know, shaking the hand of the British, but secretly arming the rebels. And Virgin kind of goes, oh, well, you know, there's nothing that we can do about smugglers. And Stormont replies, well, do smugglers use fleets? And it's very clear that the British know what the the French are up to. And what I find amazing, like if you kind of get into the details of some of these supplies, I've seen statistics and and my understanding is that there's there's maybe a little bit of debate about them, but the like proportion of gunpowder used by the revolutionaries in the first few years, it's an astronomical amount that either comes directly from France or through channels that the French have enabled through you know, the, the, this kind of backroom dealing that they that they had helped set up. It is a fair amount, and we don't even know the full extent of it because they obviously didn't keep written records on this stuff because they didn't want it to come out. Yeah, they gave a huge amount of aid to the Americans at the beginning. The Americans really started without an army at all. They had small militia units. People had their own private guns for the most part. A few colonies maybe had a few hundred muskets. There was almost no powder in North America because Britain had stopped selling it to the Americans a few years prior because they saw this coming. So without the aid of France and uh, the covert shipments that were made, there wouldn't have been a whole lot to fight with in North America. One statistic that I stumbled across, uh, which I found absolutely astonishing, was that in 1775, there was perhaps only one fully operational and sizable gunpowder mill in the whole of the colonies. It was in Pennsylvania. 
fighting a war at the time without gunpowder is was not exactly the most practical of endeavors. And so it just gives you a sense of just how well really reliant the revolutionaries were on this foreign aid and, and most notably from France. Are you able to maybe elaborate on not only the, the kind of the supplies, the physical supplies that the French gave, but also the French volunteers that came over? Because that is is a, a, a topic of, of a lot of discussion, not only relating to, of course, the hero of two worlds, but other French volunteers as well in the Continental Army. In 1775 and 76, there weren't a lot of volunteers. It was mostly aid. And it made a big difference, but it was it was just equipment. And it wasn't even a whole lot. It was a few shiploads that we know about that came directly from France. And there were maybe a few more that came from uh, French colonies in the Caribbean. But, I mean, it was vital. I mean, when Washington took over the Continental Army at Boston in 1775, he found that he had enough gunpowder to provide 13 rounds of ammunition per man in the entire army, which would last you about five minutes in a battle. So, yeah, I mean, he was desperate for anything. I would also say that as part of this realpolitik of France, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, France's aid was kind of contingent on how well they saw the colonies were doing. When the British landed in en masse in late 1776 and took over New York and almost destroyed the Continental Army, Silestine and Beaumarchais suddenly found all sorts of doors were being closed to them, that they were not able to get aid because it looked like Britain was on the verge of victory and France did not want to get stuck with the accusation that they were aiding these rebels in a now ended war so that Britain can now focus its wrath on France. After Washington came back and retook New Jersey and the battles of Trenton and Princeton, all of a sudden aid opened up again. And then a little later, aid seemed to wane again. And then we have the American victory at Saratoga, where an actual British army of thousands is actually captured by the Americans, which was, I think, the first time that had happened ever in the history of the British modern army. So France said, hey, well, there may really be something here. And it was really after news of Saratoga that France decided that it was maybe time to get involved in the war in a bigger way. And they knew that doing so would lead to a war with Britain. But this, by this point, we're three years into the war, and France has had time to build up its navy and other resources. And it would have liked another year, I think, but they decided they were ready at this point. One of the things that the French government was allowing and even encouraging was this idea of liberty and equality, celebrating that the Americans were fighting for this wonderful ideal, which, you know, when you're talking about an absolutist king, you wonder if that's really a good idea to be making that a popular thing for the masses to be talking about. They did it because they wanted to drum up French support for the war in America, because they thought, as you said, it was in their best interests to get this thing moving. So in 1778, we see quite a few French officers volunteering to go to America and fight. And of course, uh, Lafayette is the most well-known. There were actually a couple who arrived before Lafayette. One of them, we don't even know really his background. His name was Matthias de Fermoy, and he claimed to have come from the the West Indies from a French, and he claimed to be a French officer, but nobody can find any records of him anywhere. So we think he was kind of a fraud that managed to get himself a brigadier generalship in the Continental Army based on these claims. And he was a pretty terrible officer. And there was another one, Prudhomme de Boer, who came over early. These were both disappointments. 
for the Americans. They thought they were horrible officers. And they're like, why do we want these French people leading us? Entered Lafayette, and he brought with him a shipload of other officers as well, some some other generals, including Baron de Kalb, who I mentioned earlier, and said, here we are. We, we would all like to become generals in your army, please, and lead you. And Congress kind of looked at him and was like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. So there was some real disagreement about whether these people were even going to join the Continental Army. Lafayette got in relatively quickly, even though he was 19 years old at the time, because Lafayette was richer than God and had all sorts of money. He actually bought the ship that brought these people over to America. He agreed to serve with no pay, and he would actually pay his aides, his lower officers that would serve as his aides to camp. So Continental Congress, who was always stuck for money, said, all right, sure. If it's not going to cost us anything, you can be a major general. Might uh, as well at that point. It's a free option. Yeah, it's Why they, not? Right. Well, they didn't give him a real command. He He essentially served on George Washington's military staff, essentially as a colonel, even though he had the title of major general. The thinking behind this was that Lafayette was a very influential and important person within France because of his title and his wealth, and that he would be a key to securing greater aid from France going forward. So he was seen as vital to that. Now, some of the other generals were left cooling their heels for quite some time, including de Kalb. Uh, after a few months, they eventually decided to give a few of them commissions, and uh, one or two of them actually got sent home. So it was kind of a less than enthusiastic greeting, shall we say. But those who did join, and I counted, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven generals from France served as generals in the Continental Army. I'm sorry, they weren't generals when they were in France. Lafayette was actually a captain in France and got a major generalship in the Continental Army. But yeah, seven of them did serve as generals in the Continental Army to varying degrees of success. Lafayette was one of the well, is the most well known uh, and did succeed in quite a few battles. Uh, Johann de Cobb was quite successful, uh, although he was killed about halfway through the war in the Battle of Camden. Some of the others kind of fizzled out. Uh, Thomas Conway, I guess, is one of the most famous. Um, you might guess from the name Conway that he was not of French origin. He was an Irishman, but he did serve his life in the French army. He was the namesake of the Conway Cabal, which was an attempt to um, replace George Washington partway through the war with another American soldier. So, yeah, the, the, the French did play some important roles in several battles and were key to linking the Americans and, and France to, to this cause. They came for different reasons. Some of them came for reasons like Lafayette, who was just a young, enthusiastic supporter of liberty and equality, and America was the place where this was happening. And I think he also hoped to prove his military chops so that he could advance in the, in the French army. And that was a common thing. It was not uncommon for officers in all European armies to go fight in another army during a war in order to improve their experience and ability and show off their abilities, which would help with their promotions when they went back home. There is also an argument to be made that France, and this again is showing their lack of faith in the, in the Americans, believed that there might be an opportunity to take over. One of the reasons DeKalb went with Lafayette was that 
he was there to see if there was a possibility that George Washington could be replaced as commander in chief by a French officer. There was a, a very uh, top French officer who they thought might take over the army because the Americans had no experience in fighting warfare and the French officers knew how to fight this. And at some point, the Americans would realize this and be willing to turn over command to uh, the French leadership. Now, of course, once they got over and really talked to the Americans, they realized this was never going to happen. But that was kind of a hope at the beginning. And I think a lot of French leaders were also looking to see if this might eventually result in a return to France of Canada or Louisiana or some of the other territories that they had lost. And I think they also realized relatively early on that the Americans were not too excited about that idea either. And so they kind of gave up on that. And so they really focused more on just trying to bleed Britain in America while they fought with Britain in other parts of the world over other colonies. Yeah, well, as part of the, I suppose, Treaty of Alliance between the two countries, between the US and France, France actually essentially renounces its territorial claims to large parts of North America. So right from the get-go, once they formally enter the conflict, it is clear that while regaining territories that they had previously controlled in the decades prior is just not a viable possibility. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Are you able to elaborate, once the French are formally in the war, what French participation looks like. I know that the French are obviously a key player in certain battles like Yorktown and the like, but before that, you do, we, see, we see action, or the French see action, not only on the mainland, but also there's some action in, in the Caribbean as well. You may be able to elaborate what French participation, once they're formally in the war, what, what that kind of looks like, and it's no longer just, you know, secretive supplies of gunpowder and arms. Yeah, France and the U.S. signed a Treaty of Alliance in 1778. Britain declares war on France, and France is in the war at that point. Not a lot happens in America at that point. As I said, we have a few dozen French officers in the continent, join the Continental Army. Uh, I mentioned seven generals. There were also colonels, majors, captains. Beyond that, France sent a fleet to the West Indies, what we today call the Caribbean, and was looking to capture several British colonies, uh, colonies that mostly Britain had taken from France in, in prior wars, 
and see if they could take a few others. So there, uh, there was a fleet under Admiral Destang that went to the Caribbean with the hopes of doing some things there. But they did not send an army to, to North America. Destang's fleet did come up and fight. Excuse me. They attempted to engage in a joint action with the Americans to retake Rhode Island, which fell apart because a storm destroyed the French fleet. And they apparently just kind of left before the fight even began. They also engaged uh, in a cooperative effort at the uh, siege of Savannah in Georgia, which uh, also did not go particularly well. The British withstood the siege and the French went back to the Caribbean and the Americans just kind of stayed in the Western areas where the British couldn't reach them. It wasn't until 1780 that an army actually reached uh, a French army reached North America, and they arrived in Newport, Rhode Island, by which time the British had given up that area and really sat there for a year and did nothing. The American army had almost completely fallen apart by 1780. After the the winter of, of 79-80, Washington moved out of his winter quarters with about 2,000 men. The Americans had also lost 5,000 men uh, when the British took Charleston, South Carolina, and they lost another couple thousand men at the Battle of Camden. The Americans were really on the ropes, and the French sent an army of about 7,500 men over. They had wanted to send more, but didn't have enough ships to bring them over. So France didn't really have its full army, and America had not much of any army at this point. Their hope was to capture New York, but they, until they had about triple the numbers that they currently had, they couldn't do much of anything. So France sat in Newport, uh, the Americans sat in North Jersey, and they both kind of went back to their respective governments and said, more money, guns, ammunition, and we can get this thing going. What the French army in America did do, of course, was keep the British in New York, they didn't leave that city or that region, at least, for the next couple of years. There was an army in the South already by this time, and it, it was that's where all the major action was going. So the French army basically kept the northern British army just sitting there doing nothing. So they kind of kept that tamp down. All of this changed when the southern army, the British southern army, started really getting on the run and getting on the ropes. And we have General Cornwallis moving from the Carolinas up into Virginia, eventually ending up at Yorktown. Cornwallis had hoped to be rescued by the British fleet at Yorktown, but a French fleet prevented the British fleet from landing and left Cornwallis isolated there. Washington and the French generals saw their opportunity. They marched down from New York and New Jersey to Virginia, and they were able to capture Cornwallis, which effectively ended the war. But that was really the only major military action that involved cooperation of the French army and the Continental Army. Yeah, it is interesting. And you've also got the French army in places like Gibraltar and the like, which obviously, when we think of the American Revolutionary War, the last thing you're thinking about is the Mediterranean Sea. But you know, there's a range of conflicts that the French are involved in uh, elsewhere as well. But it's always fascinating when you look at the kind of multiple attempts to really get the French involved in the conflict. You mentioned, you know, the, the kind of debacle that occurred at, at, in Rhode Island initially. It's, uh, it, you know, they just never seem to be able to find their moment. And then all of a sudden, Yorktown comes along, and not only is it their moment, but it's a it's a decisive one at that. 
Yeah, a lot of it came down to luck and timing. But yeah, one of the other things France did, which was a great help to the Americans, was they brought Spain into the war in 1780. Spain never became an ally of the U.S. during the war. It was only an ally of France, and it came in primarily because it wanted to recover Gibraltar from Britain. Um, and so it was getting French assistance with that endeavor, which never really panned out. But we see battles, uh, the, the British Army especially is spread out all over the place fighting France and Spain now. There are uh, major battles in Central America. There, uh, we already talked about the Caribbean. Uh, there are major battles in what eventually became India between all three countries. So, and in, in the Mediterranean as well. So, yeah, the, it really is becoming a world war. It's one that Britain, without any allies, cannot afford to fight and is really fighting defensively at this point. Um, there was even a proposed invasion of Britain in, I think it was supposed to take place in 1779, which was only called off because the combined fleet got a raging case of smallpox and most of them died before anything could happen. So Britain really felt itself under threat, and they realized this early. Uh, in 1778, when they realized that France was going to, France did enter the war, British officials were basically trying to minimize their losses at that point. They were not looking to win the war; they were looking to see what they could, how they could get out of this war, losing as little as possible. So you see the Carlisle Commission going over to America at that point, and essentially being ready to promise anything to the Americans short of complete independence to end the war. And the Americans were like, yeah, we would have liked that three years ago, but not today. Sorry. We see that Britain pulls out of Philadelphia, which they had conquered because they don't want to be in too many different areas where they may get pinned down. So they they really just kind of squirrel away in New York and send an army, as I said, to the South, because they did think that there were a lot of loyalists in the South and that they would at least be able to maintain control of these southern colonies when, when a peace accord was finally reached, they would only have to grant independence to New England and some of the mid-Atlantic states rather than the Carolinas and Virginia and all that area. Yeah, no, Britain was definitely under threat. And, and that's the thing, even just the threat of uh, invading the home islands was enough to divert British resources, substantial British resources elsewhere. And this was a problem that really the, the Brits had where they had to be, you know, they had to, to deploy reasonable resources, not only to America, but the Caribbean. You mentioned that there was substantial conflict in Gibraltar, India, the home islands. It, it was it was a mess, to say the least. I don't envy British planners. Yeah, I mean, one of the things to think about is that the entire British army worldwide at the beginning of the war was about 50,000 men. They sent an army of 50,000 to New York to retake it, and uh, well, between New York and Quebec in 1776. So th there was a massive buildup between the beginning of the war and uh, in 1775 and 1776, because they still needed to keep soldiers in places like Menorca and India and Ireland, and of course defending the homeland of of Britain. So uh, they did get some Hessians to uh, um, supplement their forces, but. There was a massive buildup within Britain, and this was a, a, a huge cost that they, they couldn't afford. And when the home islands were threatened, when France and Spain entered the war, they had to pull tens of thousands of troops out of North America. So we're looking at more like maybe fifteen or 20,000 British and Hessian troops in North America instead of 50,000. So they were just 
pulling back and doing a complete holding action because they were worried about London being invaded and things like that. And so they had to redeploy troops where they needed them. One of the things that I've always found interesting is how the war ended, in particular treaties and discussions around perhaps maybe agreements that the Americans and the French had around negotiating together and how much that actually occurred once treaties were signed. Are you able to elaborate on what that process looked like and what the various stakeholders walked away with and maybe who was happy and who was less than joyful? Right. Well, as I said, the Franco-American Treaty was signed in 1778, and it basically said that both sides would continue the war with Britain until Britain made peace with both of them. So in other words, one side couldn't bow out early. After Yorktown in late 1781, when news of that reached Europe in early 1782, Britain had decided the gig was up. They needed to accept American independence at some level, and they were ready to sign a treaty at that point. Treaty negotiations began in Paris between American and British officials, but French officials were watching this very closely because they still had an all-out war going on with Britain, and they had France had signed another treaty with Spain saying that they would not end the war until Spain had decided to end the war. Spain was still looking to recover Gibraltar and a few other places. So the war raged on for another year. British and American negotiators essentially sat in Paris arguing, but not really coming to any conclusions. And one of the reasons the Americans got what I think was a very generous settlement was that Britain just wanted to do whatever they had to do to get America out of the war. And so they were willing to give them all the Western lands and all the Northwest Territory, which Britain essentially still held at that point, and give them fishing rights off Canada and just a whole range of things. So Americans were absolutely happy with the negotiated agreement which was finally signed and finalized in September of 1783. By that point, the French and Spanish had pretty much wrapped everything up. There was a major fight going on. I think there was one final attempt at retake Gibraltar around that time, which failed. But the French and Spanish also signed peace treaties with Britain within a couple of months of that. Everybody knew it was coming, and so that's why they were willing to let the Americans sign the treaty when they did. So yeah, the war ends in 1783. Everybody goes back home basically to lick their wounds, except for the Americans who have tons and tons of land that they never had before and no further threats to them, except from some Indian tribes, and are ready to greatly expand. Yeah, you can definitely see why the Americans thought they got a great deal out of the uh, the Treaty of Paris. Yeah, it was an amazing deal for them. And I think Britain thought, British negotiators thought, well, this this will stand for a few years, and at some point we'll be back at war, and we'll just take all this back from them when we're in a better position to do so. That did not happen. <laughs> no, and neither did the French. You know, we were discussing French motivations before, but France did see some territories return to it, but not significant territories by any means. Obviously, Canada remained in British hands, and Louisiana was also lost to France. Uh, well, at, at this point in time, um, but yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that. The people walking away from the treaty with the with the best deal with the Americans, the British were licking their wounds, and the French had successfully humiliated Great Britain. They had weakened their rival, but especially given the cost of French participation, it's you know the, I think the jury was out about whether their intervention was worth it or not. Yeah, Britain was heavily bankrupted after the war, but but so was France. Wars are very expensive, especially at this time. Uh, professional armies and 
lot of expenses. One of the reasons that Britain and France weren't at war for 100 years of the 100 years prior to the American Revolution was they needed breaks from time to time to save up money and rebuild their resources so they could go at it again. And this was one of those times. They were basically both trying to rebuild their treasuries, rebuild their militaries for what they inevitably knew would be the next war in a few more years. They were at war at the start of 1793. So it's essentially, it's a 10-year peace, not even. France obviously went through some unexpected changes during that time, which you obviously covered in much more detail in your podcast. The beginning of the French Revolution, which led to the next war with Britain. The United States was treaty obligated to assist France in a war, but the United States did not have a military after the American Revolution. They had a few naval vessels, which they actually gave to France after the American Revolution. They cut their Continental Army down to, I think it was as low as like 100 men at one point. Those 100 men were mostly sitting in forts to make sure that people didn't steal the cannons and melt them down for scrap metal or something. So there was no military in the U.S. And so when France was getting ready to go to war, there was a lot of debate in America. Well, should America return the favor of its ally and go back to war with Britain again? And the decision was no, not only because they didn't have the resources, but there was the argument that France started this war by attacking Britain, and therefore they were not treaty obligated to assist France in a war of aggression. The other argument that you also had, it's it's fascinating, maybe if we do a round two sometime, we can get into the Washington administration and their view and, and public perceptions of France as it goes through its revolution and obviously goes through the terror. But the other argument was, of course, that France's government had changed during this period of time. Before France went to war with Great Britain at the start of 1793, it was already at war with the Austrians and Prussians as of 1792. And one of the arguments that you see within America is, well, actually, we made an agreement with Louis XVI and what would be termed now the old regime. And by this point in time, there is a completely new constitutional arrangement In France, we have a constitutional monarchy, and then by the end of 1792, we actually have a French Republic. And so one of the arguments by Americans that are looking to stay out of the war and looking to stay neutral is actually the treaty, not only is it a defensive treaty or, you know, does not apply in instances of aggression, and the the French are always the ones that are declaring these wars initially, but it doesn't apply because the actual signatory to the treaty no longer exists. You know, the French government then is not the French government now. Right. When the French Revolution began, it it really divided Americans because they were set, even before they started fighting foreign powers, should we support the king who supported us or should we support the cause of liberty and revolution? And the Federalists were more on the side of, of the king and the Democratic Republicans led by people like Jefferson were more on the side of the revolution. And it's also interesting, you see people like, say, Thomas Paine, who's obviously um, uh, kind of an, an Anglo-American, uh, but an American, you know, co- quite uh, influential in the American Revolution due to common sense. He is actually, at this point in time, or throughout the French Revolution, a member of France's Constitutional Convention. It has a slightly different name. It's called the National Convention. And while the National Convention is trialing King Louis XVI for crimes against the nation, Payne is quite forcefully making the argument that not only should the king not be executed, but he should be exiled and exiled to America. 
And he elaborates, he kind of tries to lean on this alliance between France and America and essentially says that, you know, well, the Americans would love to have King Louis. They, they owe him a great deal of debt. It's interesting you refer to the tensions within America and, and even someone like Jefferson, who's actually, he's actually on the ground in France when the revolution first kicks off. So he's in Paris when the Bastille falls in 1789. It's fascinating that he's really probably the most staunch defender of the revolution out of all the American founding fathers. But even him, by the time that you've had the terror occur, his enthusiasm for the revolution has waned substantially and he is willing to defend parts of it, but other parts less so. And then there are many other American founding fathers that will really absolutely detest the revolution, especially by the time it radicalizes. I always joke that Morris, who's who's on the ground in Paris when the, the monarchy falls and the terror starts to kick off, he writes a lot about the weather because he doesn't want to write about politics and he doesn't want to make comments and he doesn't want to find himself in a diplomatic incident. So he, he's writing a fair bit about what the skies above Paris are doing because he doesn't want to talk about anything else. It really was a division for many Americans. They did feel a sense of gratitude to King Louis for everything he did to support them. But at the same time, they understood the interest of people to wanting to be free. And another thing was that, you know, people would might think, you know, the, the Americans really hated the British after the war. That really wasn't the case. I mean, they obviously had their differences with the British government, but there was a really strong trading relationship between Britain and America that remained. There was, you know, the cultural and language issues, which also helped. And when a war began, American merchants especially did not want to see that trade interrupted. So there was a sense of, yes, we want to be independent from Britain, but we don't necessarily want Britain to be our enemy. Well, I think also people overlook the fact that France and the American colonies had a long history of agitation and conflict prior to the American Revolutionary Wars. And, you know, it's worth pointing out that in terms of whether the United States, um, obviously the United States will eventually find itself at war with England again, but it will actually find itself at war with France first. There's definitely a camp within America that is not as necessarily French friendly as people might expect. Right. There were, there had been a generational hostility to France when the Americans were British colonies, and there was some carryover of that, to use a mod, more modern analogy, is kind of how we think of Russians because of our history. Even in the 90s, when we started becoming friendlier, there was still a sense of hostility and, and, and that sort of thing. I think you could make some sort of comparison between America and France in that sense. Our first almost war was the quasi-war with France that took place in the 1790s. Uh, it came over the fact that the French directory demanded a bribe from American officials, and, and there was a whole diplomatic uh, fuss over that. And America actually started preparing to go to war. They brought George Washington out of retirement, made him commander-in-chief of the new army. They started trying to build up the U.S. Army again after I said it had pretty much disappeared. And this was all with the expectation of going to war with France. Now, fortunately, things got resolved before it actually came to blows, but there was absolutely some hostility there. Yeah, it's, it's always fascinating, the American-French relations at the time. Why don't you tell my viewers a little about your podcast? Yeah, so I run uh, Grey History, the French Revolution, and essentially we are also chronologically going through one of the major revolutions of the 18th century. Uh, the premise behind grey history is that history isn't black and white, there's ambiguity and there's nuance, 
And so what that means is as we're going through events in roughly chronological order, we're stopping to take the time of comparing and contrasting different points of view of witnesses, of participants, of historians, et cetera. So it's, uh, it's quite detailed. Episodes average about an hour in length. And we've just, or we're just about to hit episode 50 and King Louis XVI has just lost his head. So we are approaching the terror. We are very much uh, wading into the gray and it is an absolutely fascinating period of time for those people that, that aren't as familiar with the French Revolution. And if you want, want to understand really kind of how the kind of central ideologies of modern democracy and European history nowadays, the French Revolution is a great place to start. Well, great. Well, Mike, thank you very much for your time today. And maybe we'll do a round two in the future and cover a few more things. I know there's no uh, shortage of questions that relate to the intersection of the American and French revolutions. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for your time. Thanks, Will. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I'd like to thank William Clark for a very enjoyable discussion. If you would like to hear more from him and learn more about the French Revolution, please check out the Gray History Podcast, which is available on all major podcast platforms. You can also view his website at grayhistory.com. That's G-R-E-Y history.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week when we return to our regular episodes of the American Revolution Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.